Good morning, everybody. Great to see you. Great to welcome you to this uh, first full weekend of the new year. I want to welcome everyone who's joining us here in person and all of you who are joining us online. Thanks for being a part of our service. And as always, I want to give a, an extra special welcome to any of you who may be guests with us uh, this weekend. We're so glad to have you uh, in our uh, service today. If you've got a Bible, I want you to grab it. Let me hear your pages turning to the New Testament book of 1 Thessalonians. And we're going to be spending our time in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 this morning as I share a message with you about the church, which is something that I normally do on the first full weekend of every new year. But I want to tell you in advance that this isn't some kind of a state of the church message or even some kind of a vision message. I just want to talk to you about what it looks like to be the kind of church that genuinely honors God. And to do that, what I'm going to do is share five specific things about the church in Thessalonica that we learn in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'm going to tell you in advance that this is going to be straight exposition of the scripture. I don't have any great stories or jokes or clever things like that to tell you. I don't have a clever outline. We're just going to work our way line by line, verse by verse through uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. When I was a student in college, there was a man named Ron Carter who uh, was like a campus chaplain at the college I attended. He preached in a midweek service every Wednesday night, and then oftentimes he would preach in chapel on Tuesday morning or Thursday morning. And I will tell you that he was the first really genuinely compelling preacher that I ever heard in my life. And as a result, he had a huge impact on me as a young man who wanted to be a preacher. So the outline that I have for this message today is the exact same outline that I heard him use over 40 years ago when he preached a message at my college called the church in Thessalonica. The content is going to be a little bit different, but the outline is the same. Sadly, he passed away a little over a year ago after a bout with cancer. He's a wonderful man. He worked for Pioneer Bible Translators toward the end of his life, and he is the man who got us connected to Pioneer uh, to be able to be the church that, that fully funds the translation of the scripture into the language of the largest unreached people group in the world. And uh, I miss him every day, but uh, I thought about him all week as we as I prepared, rather, this message to share with all of you today. Uh, because I went a little bit long last night, I'm going to dive right in. If you're someone who likes to take notes, uh, well, before we do that, let's read the scripture. How about that? I get so, uh, so concerned about getting you out on time that I almost forgot about the most important thing. So if you got your Bible open to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and you're able, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of the scriptures. Here we go. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you. We're mentioning you in our prayers. We continue to remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord in spite of severe suffering. You welcomed the message with the joy given to the Holy Spirit, or by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always ask God to bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Now, 
because I wanna try to get you out on time, we're gonna dive right in. If you're someone who likes to take notes, let's start right here. The first thing that made the church in Thessalonica such a model church was it was a saved church. Write that down somewhere. It was a saved church. And you see the reality of that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 in a variety of different ways. But before we look at that, I'm going to take my Bible and I'm going to go to my left, and you can do it if you want to as well, to the book of Acts in the 17th chapter. And let's just talk for a moment about how the church in Thessalonica even came into existence. We read about it in first, or excuse me, in Acts chapter 17. When we get to this part of the book of Acts, the apostle Paul is on his second missionary journey. Now, listen, if you're someone who's not really got much of a church background or you don't know much about the Bible, you don't know who Paul is, you don't know anything about missionary journeys, don't you worry about that for a second. We're just so glad you're here. Paul was a man whose story is found in the scriptures, a man who experienced a genuine conversion in his life and then became a servant of God who went around planting churches and serving churches. And when we get to Acts chapter 17, he's in his second missionary journey. And this is what we read beginning in verse one. Some of you, by the way, who went with me to Greece and Turkey in 2016, you've been in the city of Thessaloniki, which is the place for the church in Thessalonica. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ, hang on to that, that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Verse four, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. Let's stop right there. So during this second missionary journey, Paul and his companions traveled to Thessalonica and he went into the synagogue to preach. There was no church there. And so he went into the synagogue to preach to the Jews. That was his custom. And Luke says that for the, over the course of three Sabbaths, so either for three weeks or maybe two weeks that included three Sabbaths, Paul went into the synagogue and he preached to the Jews. And as Luke writes the book of Acts, he tells us that this is what Paul did in the synagogue. He reasoned with them, note this, from the scriptures, that would be the Old Testament scriptures, that were filled with prophecies about the coming of Jesus. He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving to them that Jesus was the Christ. And as the Christ, he had to suffer and die and ultimately rise from the dead. Now that title Christ is important. In the original language of the New Testament, that's the Greek word Christos, and literally translated, it means anointed one. Write that down somewhere, maybe in the margin of your Bible there in Acts chapter 17. Another way you could say it is that it means chosen one, and because it means anointed one and chosen one, it was a term that was used in reference to the Messiah, who would be God's anointed one, God's chosen one, to be king and deliverer. And so he went into the synagogue and reasoned from the scriptures with the Jews about the reality that Jesus was the Christ, or in other words, that Jesus was the Messiah. And this was important because the biggest stumbling block, the single biggest stumbling block for the Jews during Jesus's ministry related to accepting him as the Christ or as the Messiah was the cross. See, they believed that God was going to send a Messiah. They were waiting for a Messiah, for the Christ, for the chosen one, for the anointed one. They were waiting for him. But they thought he was going to come in power and in might and in majesty. And Jesus coming the way he did in such a humble fashion was not in line with that. But in particular, Jesus dying on the cross, taken and being beaten and brutalized and murdered on a cross did not fit their expectation for the Christ, for the chosen one, the anointed one, the Messiah. 
And so Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures. This is what he did. He reasoned with them from the scriptures that he was, Jesus was in fact the Christ and that the cross was a part of God's ultimate plan. And he did this so well that there were genuine conversions as a result and not just a few of them. Now we go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter one and we see the reality that these were in fact genuine conversions and that the church in Thessalonica was a model church because it was a church filled with people who were saved, genuinely saved. And I see that in a number of different ways. Let's just start in verse one. I hope you have your Bible open there in front of you still. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, now note this, to the church of the Thessalonians, and here's the key, in God, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Or in other words, in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is significant that Paul writes that these believers are in fact in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those weren't just opening words to a letter, they were the recognition of the reality of their faith. I don't have time to talk about this in a comprehensive way this morning, but there are multiple times in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul, and we'll just talk about the phrase in Christ. There are multiple times in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul writes about the significance of being in Christ, being found in Christ, what that really means. A couple of references that come to my mind right away are first of all, Romans chapter eight and verse one, where Paul writes, therefore there is now no condemnation. Everyone say no condemnation. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me ask you a question. How thankful are we for those words today? I mean, really, let's not just let that slide by. How thankful are we for those words today? When you think about your life and you think about the mistakes you've made in your life, I think about my life, I think about the mistakes I've made in my life, the failures of my life and the sins in my life, the times where I did not walk down a road that God wanted me to walk down, how thankful are we to know that in Christ there is no condemnation? How powerful is that? Now, the other verse that comes to my mind is 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, where Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. That's just like Romans 8, chapter 1. I've told you before, the word new there, in the original language of the New Testament is the Greek word kainos, which means new in nature. Not new in the sense of time, but new in nature. You and I will never be able to go back in time to redo the mistakes of our past or the failings of our past, but we don't have to because God, at the moment of our salvation, gives us a whole new nature where that's forgiven, where that's not held against us, where there's no condemnation. And so here's my point. Paul was too familiar with the power and the significance of those words to ever use them lightly with regard to anyone's life. And so when he begins by saying to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's a recognition of the reality of their salvation. And we keep moving on through the verse we, uh, chapter, we get to verses two and three, and Paul says, we always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. And then note this, we continue to remember before our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope. And those again are words that are only used to describe somebody whose salvation is real and is genuine. Paul would not have used these words casually. He would not have talked about somebody mirroring the qualities of faith, hope, and love casually. Those are important words. You remember, if you're familiar with your New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 
where Paul talks about love. He gives us this great description of love. He begins by talking about you can have all these, one, every, every wonderful quality in the world, but if you don't have love, none of it matters. And then he tells us what love is and what love isn't. And he gets to the end of the chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, 11, and he says, but now these three remain. You remember what they were? Faith, hope, and love. And he says, but the greatest of these is love. This was too significant for Paul. The, the recognition of these qualities in someone's life were too significant for Paul to use them casually. And so they reflect the reality that these believers in Thessalonica were genuinely converted. They were genuinely saved. And then you get the first verse four, first Thessalonians chapter one and verse four. And if you're not convinced by now, this will seal the deal because Paul writes, for we know brothers, another reference to the genuineness of their salvation. He calls them brothers. He says, for we know brothers loved by God that he has chosen. Everyone say chosen, chosen you. He's chosen you. And that's a powerful word, friends. That's a powerful word. In the original language of the New Testament, it's the Greek word eklektos. And it's a word that is clearly, clearly, undisputably connected to salvation. Now, I'm going to pause right here, and I'm going to tell you something that you already know, probably many of you. Many people have different beliefs and convictions about the specific meaning, the specific understanding, and the specific application of that word chosen. And I don't have time to talk about that today because... That probably takes not just a standalone message, but a standalone series to talk about all the complexities involved in that. But the bottom line is it's a word that is clearly associated with the reality of salvation. And so the very first thing you can say about the church at Thessalonica that makes it a model church is that it was a saved church. Now, I can just imagine someone saying, okay, pastor, that was interesting, but aren't all churches saved churches? And I don't want to sound overly judgmental or critical, but my answer would be, no, no, they're not. Not every church is filled with people who are all genuinely saved and converted. And while I don't uh, have a lot of time to go into this, I will tell you that the Bible teaches us that there are different levels of belief that someone can have related to Jesus. People can be attracted to Jesus and can, people can have different levels of belief related to Jesus without really genuinely being saved. Now, let me give you a couple of examples of this reality that you can have, you can have different levels of belief. This is not uh, necessarily, at least the first one, connected to Jesus. The second one would be. But there's a great verse in the book of James chapter 2 and verse 19 where James says, he writes this, he says, you believe there is one God good, even the demons believe that and shudder. Are those words on the screen behind me? You believe there's one God good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. One of the most fundamental truths of the Bible that you need to embrace about the reality of God is that there is only one God. Somebody say one God. One God. Even the demons believe that. Even the demons have enough orthodoxy in their theology to recognize there's only one God. But demons don't live in a right relationship with God. Nobody in their right mind would say that they do. You get the book of Acts. Now, here's one connected to Jesus. You get the book of Acts where we read about a man named Simon. He's called Simon the Sorcerer. And so what that means is that he was involved, his whole life was involved in the deep, dark uh, realms of the occult. That's who he was. He lived in great darkness. Well, a man named Philip had a tremendous ministry in Samaria where Simon the Sorcerer lived. And he came and he began to preach about Jesus. And Simon the Sorcerer was so moved by the preaching that in Acts chapter 8 and verse 13, it says that he believed in Jesus and was baptized. That sounds pretty significant, doesn't it? That he believed in Jesus was baptized. Well, you continue on in Acts chapter 8, and you see that at some point, Peter and John, Peter and John, I mean the big dogs, the big dogs of the apostles, right? They came to Samaria, and one of the things that they did, which we see happening in a different place in the Bible, is they imparted the Holy Spirit to people by laying their hands on them. 
which would be amazing, wouldn't it? Imparted the Holy, think about this, imparted the Holy Spirit to people by laying their hands on them. And Simon was so intrigued by that and so wanted to have that same ability that he offered them money to have that same ability. Well, listen to Peter's response. Peter, who by the way does not mince words, had not, had not, didn't have a lot of emotional intelligence didn't think, well, I'm going to talk softly to this guy and I'm going to talk strongly to this guy. He just said the way he was. And so in Acts chapter 8, verses 20 and 21, this is what he said. He said, may your money perish with you. Now, let me put that in, in really, really simple, accurate, modern terms. He said, you and your money can go straight to hell. I mean, just get this picture in your mind. Simon the sorcerer, he's got his money out. He's saying, here, I want this same thing. And Peter says, you and your money can go straight to hell. May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart, listen to him, your heart is not right before God. I think that's a pretty clear and a pretty, in, in, in a pretty uh, 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 indicting, scathing statement about the reality of the fact that even though Simon had some level of belief in Jesus, and even though he had expressed that through baptism, he wasn't truly saved. Jesus himself said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. It, here's the bottom line. It's possible, friends, I'm telling you. It is possible to be drawn to Jesus and even have some kind of response to the message of Jesus without being genuinely saved. That is clear from the scriptures. And you add to that, as we think about that in modern terms, or modern days, you add to that the fact that the world is filled with churches who, and I can't think of any other way to say it, are simply not being faithful to preach the Bible, not least, not, at least not the whole Bible, the complete message of the Bible. You have to ask the question, how can someone be genuinely saved in that setting? How can someone ever become genuinely saved in a church where they don't ever talk about sin or the need for repentance or the reality to recognize your life for what it is apart from God? I don't, I'm not somebody who relishes in being negative or beating down anybody, but here's the truth. You can't get your life right with God until you understand your life is wrong before God on your own. And if somebody never preaches about that reality, which, is, which leads to the, most, the, the best part of the gospel, which is, but in spite of all that, God loves you. In spite of all that, Jesus died for you. In spite of all that, Jesus offer, or God offers his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness to completely change your life. But that reality that we have in our, in our culture today simply reflects the truth of the scriptures. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, for the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers who will say what their itching ears want to hear. Tell me how good I am. Tell me how I can have my best life now. Or something like that. And if you don't think that's happening every single week, then you're not paying attention. If a church is gonna make a difference in the world today, it's gotta be people who are filled with, it's gotta be filled with people who are saved, who are genuinely living in a right relationship with God. Probably the most common question that I've been asked over the last 40 plus years of my life is, Pastor, how do I know if I'm saved? Have you ever asked that question? You ever had that you ever had any seed of a doubt in your mind about the reality of your salvation? Pastor, how can I know that I'm saved? Now, I could answer that in a complete standalone sermon, but we, in our limited time, uh, 
only uh, have given me the opportunity to, to say this. Let me just ask you this. As you look at your life, all of us, let's just all do this. As we look at our lives today, can we say with integrity, can we say with integrity that we have a genuine love for God, that we have a hatred of sin, that there's the demonstration of humility in our lives, that we're devoted to the glory of God above everything else, that there is a pattern of personal and private prayer in our lives, that we love other people, or at least we try to love other people with the selfless love the Bible teaches us that we need to have. Is there a separation in our lives from the world? Is there evidence of spiritual growth and obedience? Because those, according to the scriptures, are the genuine evidences of saving faith. Now, I doubt that any of us here on our best day could say that we're perfect in all of those things. So I don't want anybody going home filled with a lot of anxiety thinking that they're not really saved because I want you to listen to what I'm gonna say next really close. I love this truth. I love this truth about God. He is not so much interested in the perfection of your life as he is the direction of your life. Okay? And if you can look at your life and say, at least there is a sense that, I'm, that I have the direction of those things, the desire and the direction of those things in my life, then I think that you can know for sure that you're genuinely saved. Here's number two. The second thing that made the church in Thessalonica a model church was that it was a surrendered church. We go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we pick it up in verse 4. We talked about the first part of verse 4 a moment ago, but let's go from verse 4 to the first part of verse 6. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because the gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and the Lord. It's the first part of verse 6, honestly, that really stands out to me when Paul says, you became imitators of us and the Lord. Let's talk about that for a moment. That word imitators, in my NIV Bible, in the original language of the New Testament, is the Greek word mimites, mimites, and we get the English word mimic from that word. What Paul is saying um, is that right from the beginning of their conversion, these believers in Thessalonica imitated them or mimicked them in the way they began to live their lives. Now, it's easy to hear that and think something like this. Well, I'm not sure that's a great thing, Pastor, because we're not supposed to imitate anybody but Christ. We're not supposed to mimic our lives after anyone but Christ. But I want you to think about something with me. For most people, and, and this would be especially true in the New Testament days when the church was so new. For most people, especially at the beginning of their life of faith, the only real practical knowledge they have of Christ is what they see in those who led them to Christ. And so it would make sense that they would look to Paul and Silas and Timothy and, and the people that were there and begin to imitate their lives as they began their new lives of faith. And I think that's something Paul understood. I'm not gonna tell anybody to imitate me. I'm not gonna ever tell you to, to imitate my life. I'm gonna tell you, you can learn from me in terms of knowledge and understanding about the scriptures and about Christ and what it means to be a Christian, but I'm never gonna tell you to imitate me, but you know what? I'm not the apostle Paul. And Paul understood this truth. In fact, Paul understood this truth so clearly and he was so confident of his calling that he literally wrote to the church in Corinth and said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse one, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Some translations, older translations, he literally says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. This is Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the confidence of his calling and in the confidence of his role as a church planner and an evangelist. 
But the bottom line is this, what we learn from that is that right from the beginning of their conversion, these believers in Thessalonica surrendered themselves to Christ-likeness, to living like Christ, to pursuing a life like Jesus. And I'm telling you, folks, a church filled with people committed to Christ-likeness, living like Christ, is going to be a powerful church in the world I don't care what part of the world you're in, it's gonna be a powerful church in the world. Do you remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he was praying before he was arrested and falsely tried and then ultimately crucified? Uh, he, he prayed this beautiful, some people call it high priestly prayer. It's recorded for us in John chapter 17. Maybe you can go home and read it this afternoon. But in that prayer, he basically he prayed for three things. Number one, he prayed for himself. Number two, he prayed for his disciples. I'm talking about the original disciples, the 12 that he had called. And then he prayed for everyone who would one day be disciples, which means in essence that he prayed for you and he prayed for me all the way back in the Garden of Gethsemane. Some of you have been with me to the Holy Land and the Garden of Gethsemane is one of the highlights of that trip just to imagine Jesus praying there. But listen to what he prayed when he prayed for those who would become believers. John 17, beginning in verse 20, my prayer is not for them alone. That would be for the disciples, his current disciples. He's transitioning here. My prayer is not for them alone. But then he says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one one, take note of that. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one in them and you in, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Well, I've been a Christian and for over 50 years. I've been a pastor for over 40 years. And I can tell you that there's only one way that I can imagine there being this kind of unity in a church, in any church, regardless of the size, filled with a bunch of people like you and me who at the end of the day are just a bunch of, all, uh, just a bunch of sinners, all of us saved by the grace of God. There's only one way I can think that there could be unity like this in a church, and that is if we all were committed to surrendering our lives to the pursuit of living like Christ. If we were all committed to pursuing Christ-likeness in our lives. Because it's hard sometimes to get along with people. Somebody say amen to that. Even people in church. I'm an expert about this. <laughs> you ever heard the old saying, to dwell above with saints we love? Oh, yes, that will be glory. To dwell below with saints we know? Well, that's another story. We have conflict. We fall into conflict with each other. I, I, something happened the other day to remind me about a serious conflict I had several years ago here with a church member. And it wasn't just a conflict between me and the church member. It ended up being a conflict between that church member and our entire board of elders. And just remembering that, just remembering that, covered my life with discouragement for several days. It was several days before I could get out of that funk of thinking about that. It's naive to think that we won't have some conflict in the local church and we won't have some disagreements. Uh, but when Jesus prays for unity among those who would believe, he prays for the kind of unity that can overcome differences that are basically just matters of preference and opinion. Because friends, the conflict I had with a church member was, a, was based on a biblical truth. But the conflicts that happen most of the time in church I can tell you this from experience, largely revolve around matters of opinion and preference. We're never gonna have the same opinions and preferences as each other, never. 
we're different generations. We have different backgrounds. We have different likes and dislikes. But when we are committed to Christ's likeness, we can overcome those things in a way that honors God. Matters of opinion and preference will not uh, hurt a church if we're all surrendered to viewing Christ as our only example for the way we live our lives. A.W. Tozer gives this great story that I think drives that home. He said, if I have 100 pianos and I want to tune them and I go around trying to tune them to each other, I've got a mess. But if I take one, one tuning fork and tune all 100 pianos to that one tuning fork, they'll they'll be in tune to each other. Well, who's our tuning fork when it comes to how we live our lives? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And if we're all committed to trying every day the best we can as we're equipped and and filled with the Holy Spirit to live like Jesus, then we can be a church like the church in Thessalonica. And that was a church that was a surrendered church, surrendered church. And that's a model church. Number three, Here's the third thing about the church in Thessalonica. It was a suffering church. Go back to 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 6, and we read and we read the first part of verse 6 a moment ago. We'll read the entire verse here. Paul says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Now note this, in spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. So Paul says, in addition to being a saved church and a surrendered church, they were also a suffering church. Uh, and to see that, you've got to go back to Acts chapter 17. Don't do that. It'll take too much time. Acts chapter 17 again and see what happens right after this church came into being. We read verses 1 through 4 a moment ago. Paul went with his associates. He went into the synagogue over the course of three Sabbaths. He went in and reasoned from the scriptures with the Jews uh, that Jesus was the Christ, that Jesus was the Messiah. Okay, and then there was uh, several conversions. You pick it up in verse 5. But... <laughs> but the Jews, that's the Jews who didn't believe, but the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world, I love that, all over the world, have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. So there was, there was difficulty. And how could there not be? Because who here is not smart enough to understand that if you're going to be a saved church and a surrendered church, you're going to face some kind of abuse from the world. You're going to. Think about what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 14. He said, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, I know Jesus was speaking to people, but this has application to the church because the church is not a building or a, geog- a geographic location. The church is people. It's people like you and me. That's who it is. And we're to be the light of the world. What's the purpose of light? The purpose of light is to dispel the darkness. And when that happens, there's going to be times because we live in a world that is so overwhelmed by darkness. Does anybody not know that today? Because we're living in a world that is so overwhelmed by darkness, some of it on the most ridiculous level, there's going to be times when the darkness pushes back against the light. Now, I'm going to pause here. I'm going to tell you, when I typed that sentence into my manuscript, I felt a twinge of conviction in my heart, and you probably should feel some in yours as well. Because we have to ask ourselves the question, is there anything about the light of my life that's dispelling any darkness around me? Is there anything about my light that's making the darkness around me uncomfortable? 
I'm going to put some words from Jesus on the screen. Just Jesus in Matthew or in John chapter five, verses eighteen through twenty, and let's uh, look at them. He's, Jesus said, "If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. I hope that you know that if you're genuinely saved, that you do not belong to this world. This world is not your home. As it is." You do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Jesus spoke those words to his disciples, and we're his disciples today. And so a simple question we should all ask ourselves is this. Does the world hate me? Let me ask you, does the world hate you? Does the world hate you? Saved and surrendered believers, saved and surrendered churches will be hated by the world. Now, let me make sure that we understand what I'm talking about when I use the word world. I've told you before multiple times, and I'm gonna give you just a quick warning. I'm gonna go a little over time today. I'm tried, but I've failed, all right? There's three different ways the Bible uses the word world. It talks about the word world in the sense of a pl the planet. We understand that. It uses the word world in the sense of people. The most uh, common example of that would be John 3:16. for God so loved the what? The world. What's he talking about? He's talking about people. The third way the Bible uses the word world, and this is the one we have to pay attention to, is it uses the world as a reference for this fallen world system that is in our world today under the control of Satan who hates God and who hates the things of God. You know, the Bible has many different titles or names that it gives to Satan. Uh, three different times in the Gospel of John, uh, he's called the prince of this world. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, the apostle Paul refers to Satan by call, calling him the God of this age. And that's hard for a lot of people to understand because it makes it seem like Satan has more power than he does, that he rules over the world, but he doesn't rule over the world. God has always been and will always be sovereign over the world that he's created. But here's what we have to understand. The Bible reveals to us that God in his sovereignty, or in other words, this is done with the full knowledge of God. God in his sovereignty has allowed Satan a position of authority over unbelievers, over people who are not saved, who are unredeemed and unregenerate. And here's how that position of authority ends. It ends when someone gives their life to Christ. Paul describes that like this in Colossians chapter one and verse 15. For he, talking about God, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. So you know, when you became a Christian, God rescued you from the control and the authority and the oversight of Satan in the dominion of darkness that he rules over that you once lived in. And if you've never been saved, if you're not a Christian today, that's the reality of your life according to the scriptures. But when you are a saved and surrendered follower of Christ, it, it should follow that there will be moments and times when the convictions and the practices of your life and your faith will be offensive to people who live in the dominion of darkness. And friends, don't we see that happening around us all the time? But if your commitment is not enough, if your commitment to Christ is not enough to bother Satan and it provides nothing that is genuinely uplifting to the cause of Christ or the kingdom of Christ, then maybe you should revisit the first point of this message where we talked about the reality of the Thessalonian church being a saved church. Number four, it was a soul-winning church. 
I go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. I will try to be quick. And we read these words. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith has become known everywhere. Now, real quickly, uh, just a couple of things I need to tell you from this. I love that word model there. He said, you became, and so you became a model. That's the Greek word to pose, which means, literally translated, means exact representation. When I was studying for the message, I found a couple of more practical definitions. It would be like uh, blueprint. Your, your life became like a blueprint or, your, or pattern. Your life became like a pattern. I especially like that word pattern because Paul is literally saying that these believers' lives in Thessalonica became a pattern for what it means to be saved, a pattern for what it looks like to live a Christian life. And friends, think about it. That is one of the greatest qualities of, that, that you can have as a soul winner, living the kind of life that draws the attention of others. Not so much in what you do, although that can be a part of it, but more in just the quality of the life that you live. Last week, we, we began by talking about uh, Jesus' words in John 10, 10, what he said, uh, about, talked about how the thief came only to steal, kill, and destroy. He said, but I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. Or in other words, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. That literally a life that's a cut above the rest. And that's really what we're talking about here. When you are saved, when you are a saved, surrendered believer, your life should be winsome to people who live in the dominion of darkness. Your marriage as Christian husbands and wives should be winsome to couples who live in the dominion of darkness. And that's one of the most effective ways to be a soul winner. That's why we have the One Life Initiative here, where we ask you just to identify one life in the network of your life, one person who's, not, who's living in that dominion of darkness, who's not saved. And then you develop a friendship with them so you can discover their story and then discern next steps about how you might point them to Christ. But listen, don't get bogged down in that third step because if you just develop a friendship with someone and you let the quality of your life, the character of your life, the depth of your life, the way you handle the stress of life in this world based on your Christian commitment, if you just let that flow from you, it will be enough in many cases to capture someone else's heart, to make them say, I want the same thing you have. But it wasn't just that. He goes on to say that there was a verbal part of their soul winning, of the soul winning component of their lives. Uh, because he says in verse 8, he says, the Lord's message rang out from you. Now, I don't know if you'll find this as fascinating as I do, but the Greek word Paul uses for rang out is the word echo. What, what English word do you think we get from that? Echo. You get the word echo from that. And so Paul says, the Lord's message echoed out of you. He said, he said you didn't just come, show up, and hear the message. You heard the message, and then it echoed out of you. It, the message we shared bounced off of you, and it went forth from you. It rang out from you. And that's exactly the way we're supposed to be. We don't, we're not supposed to come and just soak up whatever, whatever information somebody like me gives you from the pulpit. We're supposed to come, and we're supposed to hear it, and we're supposed to take it out and let it ring, ring out from our lives, echo out from us, the exact same thing that we heard. You don't stand on the cliff over a deep cavern and yell, hello, to hear an echo and hear somebody yell back, goodbye, you hear exactly what you said. And that's what he's talking about here. And here's the result, 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 8 and 9. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, not only right here where we live, but your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. 
For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. The bottom line is this church was a saved church. It was a surrendered church. It was a suffering church. And it was a soul-winning church because they were faithful in modeling and sharing and echoing the message of God to others, so much so that their faith became known everywhere. Number five, and we'll just close with this and the team can get ready to come. It was a saved church. It was a surrendered church. It was a suffering church. It was a soul-winning church. And it was, friends, a second coming church. And this part of the message always chokes me up a little bit. It was a second coming church. I'm gonna read a portion of what I just read a moment ago and then I'm gonna read it all the way through to the end of the chapter. Paul says, the Lord's message, message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They, turn, they tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and note this, and to wait. For his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. And so what this means about this church and probably the reason why they were all the other things that we said that they were is that they were a church that was a prepared church. They were prepared. They understood clearly that what they experienced in the world today was not all of the world that there was because Jesus was coming again. And they knew that more than anything else, they needed to be prepared for his return. And so I would just close with this question to every one of you here in person, all of you who are listening to me online, are you prepared for his return? Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word and for the truth of your word. Thank you for the church in Thessalonica. And I pray that your spirit would apply these truths to every heart, right? That whatever the point of of our need is, wherever we might be struggling, wherever we might have questions or doubts or difficulties, wherever we need to be convicted, please apply these words right to our hearts. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen.